how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. In Mayday, Anna is transported to a dreamlike and dangerous land where she joins an army of girls engaged in a never-ending war. Though she finds strength in this exhilarating world, she realizes she's not the killer they want her to be. The movie stars Grace Van Patten, Mia Goth, Yoko, and Juliette Lewis. In this interview, the writer-director Karen Seymour talks about untraditional filmmaking styles, how to protect your voice and natural instincts, the secret to being diligent with your time as a filmmaker, how she finds inspiration for her films outside of filmmaking, and what it means to approach inspirations diagonally. You can also look for an interview with Karen's cinematographer, Sam Levy, in episode 245 of the podcast. I took when I was at university. Um, actually, I, I took a filmmaking class before I went to college. I uh, lived in New Jersey and I um, took a class at the New School in filmmaking and it was 16 millimeter. We worked with Bolexes. And um, it was great. I think that's when I shot my first pieces of film. And uh, then when I went to Brown, I studied with a woman named Leslie Thornton, uh, who is this incredible, incredible teacher and filmmaker. And um, I just fell in love with the craft and all of the elements that it takes to make it, the, the actual making of it, the people you make it with. Um, I liked every single part of making a film from writing it to projecting it. <laughs> so I liked the whole thing. So I, I stuck with it. Who were some other like early inspirations for you? What kind of led to your style as a filmmaker? Well, the great thing is that uh, I never, looked to another filmmaker for the style of my filmmaking because 
Leslie was a really untraditional teacher. She, she was really mysterious, but now I get it. She didn't show us many films and she mm. taught us how to load a camera. She gave us a light and she gave us these assignments to make something, uh, maybe like maybe shoot two rolls of films. It's not beginning, middle and end, but maybe it's another way of Japanese thinking that has to do with haste, something like that. And then, so you go out and you, it's like you try and find your own style. You try and find what's unique to you. And she would say things like, just, you know, so people would say, well, how do you light something? And she said, well, just turn on the light and hit it if you need to. If you need the light to move, just hit it. Um, and of course, then as we moved along, you learn the craft, you learn three-point lighting and, and things like that. But she didn't think that was important. You can always learn that. Um, what she thought was prescient is to protect that instinct in you and that voice, that song that doesn't sound like anyone else's song, that, that music in you. And to help you find a way into the apparatus of film without losing it. So then you make a number of short films with her and then you see your style and it's incredible. There's, you know, 12 people in the class or whatever and you all project your work and everyone is so different and everyone found it on their own. And it's very mysterious and very, very cool. But I will say, um, at, I was watching films when I was around 14. I remember uh, an art teacher showed me the films of Maya Darren and um, they stuck with me. I thought they were, I think there's probably something to be said that they were made by a woman and she was in them and I really felt her presence and they were mysterious and beautiful. And she managed, she somehow managed to do this thing that I love in film where she uses it in a very simple way to, um, to convey almost a, a surrealism of motion um, and of thought and of being that is very beautiful, I think. Are there ways in which you kind of push those lessons forward to other people or, or teach them in yourselves? Like, are you worried today that you're going into a box? Like, how do you kind of keep that natural creative creativity there as opposed to like following formulas? I, um, I'm very uh, diligent <laughs> about where I and how I spend my time. Um, so I don't spend all my time watching films or television. I love films. I love lots of things that are being made. But like if I, let's say pre-pandemic going to the theater, if I go see a film and I try not to read about it before I see it, but if I see it, and it blows my mind. I don't see another film until it's left my mind. Like mm. I think maybe sometimes it could be a week, sometimes it could be two weeks. And I kind of let it metabolize in me. And I read a lot and I go to a lot of dance performances, I go to a lot of music performances. I find that like also reading about other artists, like there's this great book I'm reading now. Um, it's uh, Murakami, he interviews uh, Seiji Ozawa. And so it's a novelist interviewing a composer and it's all the same stuff. It's like 
the same stuff of filmmaking. It's the same concepts. Um, but somehow reading it from people who aren't making films, I don't feel like I'm calcifying. Um, I feel like it's a more dynamic way of uh, learning. So just keeping a lot of different references floating around in interesting ways and talking to different kinds of people, not always talking to filmmakers. Like, of course I talk to filmmakers and love talking to filmmakers, but I talk to architects a lot, like, you know, and um, there's so many counterpoints to what we're doing. And um, you can learn a lot by kind of coming at things diagonally, I think. You sort of just let it all wash over you and, and come out you as it may, or do you have more of a logistic approach where you're taking notes and creating lookbooks and those type of things as well? Hmm. Well, for May Day, it was, uh, May Day was very constructed in that it was written, it was shot listed, um, it was scheduled and it was shot and it was that it was very typical way of making a film. Nothing was improvised. Um, you know, it was a map. Uh, I made a map of what to do. Um, shorter works that I make, well, they do require an incredible amount of planning. The bigger they get because the apparatus gets bigger and there's just so many moving parts. The smaller films that I made when it's just me and a camera and a couple of lights are planned, but more Then when you get into the editing room, you can sort of play a little bit more and you can sort of find it. And, um, and you can be a little bit looser in your shooting and a little bit looser, like a little bit more, yeah, a little bit more, um, it's like you're writing it in the edit instead of writing it at the beginning. But Mayday I wrote and I shot the script, very clear cut. Did you find it hard to use those two parts of the mind or did you kind of see this one thing? Like, was it harder to be less precious on set if there was something to do with running out of time or things like that? Oh no, I, I don't, I don't, it's not hard for me. Um, hmm, let's see, why isn't, why is that the case? I guess directing on set comes very natural, naturally to me. I like the chaos of the set and um, I trained as a dancer. I like moving through space. I like having other people around me. Um, it's really just a, external manifestation of what's going on in your mind when you're writing. Um, so it's kind of like you're in this cocoon stage writing it and then you get to really just um, very naturally, it feels like to me, it's like you very naturally get to grow into the next phase. It doesn't feel like two different things. Tell me kind of where this idea came from. What was the initial spark that led to May Day? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. and. <laughs> It's a hard one to answer, I have to say. It's, um, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I, I, I think, I think I, when I'm thinking of a screenplay, I see these things and they're like stars. And they're like, I see a woman doing this, or I see, uh, I see a, a submarine or I hear a piece of music. And then some, at some point you see the constellation in them and that's the film. And 
I'm not exactly sure where those touchstones were because this was a very almost like deep, deeply personal piece to me. And I wrote it over a number of years. I wrote it, a very short version of it, put it away, came back to it over and over and over again over the years. Yeah, so it just dated. And so I guess, um, uh, I guess when really pressed, I think the things that were coming into my mind were certainly the myth of the sirens. I was very obsessed with that. Um, really obsessed with Greek mythology. I love, 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 love the uh, women of Greek mythology. They're so unapologetic and uh, larger than life forces of nature. Um, I had never seen characters like that when I was, you know, growing up and reading and watching movies, and watching TV and doing anything. I've never, I, I mean, that's, they were incredible to me. And I think the sirens were evocative to me because they're so powerful and so mysterious and they use music and sound uh, to lure people in. And I, I just thought that was a really fascinating myth and one that, um, you know, I, ne I never shook it. And it was funny because when I was thinking, oh, I'd like to make a film about that, um, I started delving into it like in a very academic way. I started researching it. And that myth just recedes endlessly. It, it goes back into this half bird, half woman thing goes back into Egyptian mythology. And you just can't, um, you can't pin it down. You can't find the origin of it exactly where it is, who wrote it first. It's sort of just, this uh, mysterious, very intriguing uh, myth to me that I thought there must be some reason that I cannot shake this story and there must be something to it. So I started digging at it. How do you, so for those like novice filmmakers, how do you kind of take all these ideas and then take that to possibly like a pitch meeting where you'd kind of I mean, movies are rarely about plot. So like, how did you kind of, did you just talk about the sirens? Like, what did you talk about in terms of this as a movie? Um, I learned pretty early on to talk about it in a very simple way. Um, in the very beginning, like when I had to find the money and to be very crude, um, that it's, I just had to boil it down to something that was very, you know, the elevator pitch. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so I had to think about it and I had to ask myself, what is this really about, Karen? What are you doing? You know, and um, it it uh, it was pretty clear that it is a movie about not giving up on life. That's kind of it. Um, and so this character, this main character and all the characters around her are dealing with these life and death issues and um, it's a story about her not giving up on life, period. So then when you have something very simple like that um, and you're on your feet and you get going, then you can explore all the layers and complexities and intertwinings. And if there's a dream-like aspect to it, you know, that can all come out in the music and the cinematography and the color palette and all those wonderful things. But when you're just trying to explain to someone where you're coming from, and what your point of view is, you know, a, a simple, a simple, a simple way of distilling it down to why it matters to you so much, right? <laughs> to write it maybe, or um, is is helpful. 
but it's not always easy to find those words, but it is helpful. How do you go about some of the maybe like metaphorical scenes where everybody's writing about uh, like crawling into the oven or kind of being birthed in the water, those type of things? Like, how do you think about some of those scenes? Is it just leading to the possible metaphor of the sirens or, or where does some of that come from that you're okay with talking about? Speaking of sirens, I live on the <laughs> right side of Manhattan and I can't hear a word you're saying. So okay. One second. Okay. <laughs> one second. Sure. sure. <laughs> Okay, so you said something about the met. I heard the metaphor, right? Yeah, just some of the. So when things are not uh, maybe directly obvious in terms of the plot, like she kind of crawls into an oven where it's kind of a Wizard of Oz type thing. She goes into this water. How do you think about some of that? Is it just like what's going to be visually the most beautiful, or is it metaphors attached? Just any of those examples? No metaphor for me. It's totally real. She opens the oven and she looks in, and I imagine it's like I'm making a painting or something. Hmm. Um, I'm like, oh, what would that picture look like? Oh, she'd like be red in there, and there'd be light on her face. And I guess um, this. In the story, I really wanted her to have this kind of, um, oh, and this might be an influence as well, uh, like a Narnia kind of thing. I really always loved that book of, I loved reading that in bed as a kid where they go into the wardrobe and then there's this uh, snow-filled forest, you know. Um, so I wanted her to go through a portal into a place and it's such a natural place to be in the kitchen, such a natural place portal and there's fire in there it's not it's pretty mysterious so it just it's not a metaphor it's just she literally goes in there and ends up somewhere else um you know you go over something draft after draft after draft and I remember you know I really love the poems of Sylvia Plath and at some point someone who read it said you know is that supposed to be like women putting their heads in the oven mm -hmm. it's a different way women commit suicide sadly and um you know, I said, I'm sure I had that in my mind somewhere, but I was never trying to put those things together as I wrote it. It just is an image that came to me in a way to get from A to B. Hmm. It's interesting. I feel like so many people feel forced to follow narratives they've seen before. I think this might even go back to what you're saying about that teacher. Like, do you, when you give words of encouragement, do you tell people to really go out there or if they see it in a painting, make it visual. Like, what are some of those advice you might give like that? I tell people, I'm very forceful about this. Um, I tell people if they, if someone tells them how a movie is supposed to be made, I tell them to run. Um, I try and mentor a lot of people and, you know, for what that's worth, I hope it was worth something. But I, I, I just, you know, film language as we know it in feature films, um, is invented. Um, you can watch the progression. They invented a camera, then they invented the close-up, then they invented the shot reverse shot, and all that's great. I use it. It's just a great tools of storytelling. But, you know, I, I come, my teacher, my lineage is experimental film, and sometimes people don't use any of that language, and the film can be incredibly moving. So I show those films a lot. I curate film programs um, frequently, and um, when I first started out in New York, I was showing at museums, I was showing it, I was just showing films that I thought were fascinating, either really, really long films like Bellatar to really, really short films like Nikki de saint Fal, who they just found one of her films uh, in the Pompidou. Um, anyway, so like Bellatar's films are eight hours long and he, and I tell people that I try and teach this when I 
give classes at NYU and stuff. So Bellatar, who was a wonderful filmmaker, would start with the composer. So there's no rules that you don't have, you can make your rules to say what you need to say. So for example, Bellatar started with the film composer before he wrote a single scene. And that's where he started. You can start where you need to start. Um, and you can experiment and you can invent. And I, I, I liken it to um, a, a divining rod, you know, that is that what it's called when they're looking for water, right? Uh, yeah. So it's like, it's like you kind of have to go out with a divining rod, like put all the dogma aside, put all the like books that say, hey, this is how you make a film. This is what a story is. This is what, just don't worry about that. And then just go out and try and find what means, what like that spark inside you that makes you want to make something. You're trying to make sure that spark doesn't go out. And that's a very precious thing and it can get killed by people and ideas that things ha have to be a certain way or, you know, so I'm very encouraging of people, if they're coming from a place that they think is wrong. Um, I, you know, I'm a big proponent of um, really intense rigor. So it's not like I'm saying just go loosey goosey. It's like, protect your instinct, find, find those instincts, they're very delicate. And then when you find it or you feel it, then you apply an incredible amount of hard work and discipline and repetition. And then you build your craft and, you know, it's like, there's this delicate thing and then you, you build up around it. And I, I really, yeah, I guess I kind of proselytize about this. <laughs> but this, I think everyone has something so unique to say and, we don't want everyone to say the same thing um, because then we lose so much. Um, and I, I do think that tends to happen. I think people think there's a right way to say things. And um, this filmmaking can sometimes be very far behind the other art forms in the sense that it, it can get a little stuck in its face. So I interviewed uh, Sam Levy, your cinematographer, maybe a year ago. You guys worked together on several pieces. Kind of taking what you just said, how do you start to find your your tribe or your your like-minded creatives to make all these things into reality? Like, how do you find people that you can completely trust with your vision, I guess, and move it forward? It's a lot of luck. Um, you just keep looking until you find them. And then the ones, you know exactly when it's not right. And for me, working on other sets, meeting people that way, working in the art department, curating films, teaching, just meet these people. And you know, when someone has the same feeling you do and same dedication, for me, I guess, everyone's different, but for me, I like people who really need to do this. Um, they really need to do it. And going to Croatia, the reason we chose Croatia to shoot Mayday is because we'd been there before and we loved the artists there. They're like so hardcore. The film people are hardcore there. The theater people are hardcore there. It's a hardcore place. <laughs> and um, they will give everything to make the film. They, the, they're not lazy in any way. And, and they, they, they want to pull more 
than their weight. If that makes like they want, they want to go beyond. They, it's like it's like a lifestyle or something. It's it's not a job to them. I mean, of course it is, but it, it it's like a, they're very very. How can I say this? They're just. They're there, I think we did this Jackie Chan piece that I really love. Um, and I can't remember how he puts it, but it's like do or die or something, you know, something that stark. And they're like that, you know, they're they're like, we're going to hell and back together. I mean, they'll say that, you know, and yeah. it, it's very, it's very moving to go on a journey like that with the crew like that. It was incredible. You've kind of moved from more like shorts to full features. What was the biggest surprise about making a full feature? Is there any advice you wish you had before you started it? Okay. I'll answer, yeah, but this sure. applies to anything, sure. but it became really apparent um, because feature, all filmmaking, when you have a crew of some size, but when you have a really big crew, um, and this is a very ambitious film with stunts and on location, water, and you know, there was a lot going on. It's kind of like you're on every ride of an amusement park at the same time. It's very crazy. So it's exhilarating, but it's very crazy. So you cannot ever hesitate to say what you want because if you even hesitate a little bit, that thing passes and you're on to the next thing. And it's just, you're in constant motion and, and momentum. And um, I think, you know, sometimes I would think, oh, all these people are here they're giving everything of themselves. How can I possibly ask them for one more thing that I want? And um, I would hesitate. And then that moment's gone, it's too late. So it would be, you know, just that directing is kind of simply, you keep asking for what you want and you don't hesitate or um, you will regret those moments. So a lot of people you probably talk to probably relate to you very closely for those who are stuck on like I need to do whatever's popular at the moment how do you maybe get those people out of that mindset to really make the movie they want to make and and and, you know risk it not being popular or whatever just to really get their voice out there I think you're just very encouraging of people and supportive and if they make something a play or something or anything a film write a piece of music or a song that they think is terrible. That's usually what we all do that, right? We all feel it's terrible. And then we're afraid. And then we go to make something that's popular, you know, because we feel like what we made was horrible. But it's that's normal to think that most of what you make is horrible. So that's I just encourage people to like that's you're on the right track. Like you're gonna feel like that. Um so don't be afraid of that. Um, and I point out, look, I know you think this is horrible, but look at that scene. Look at that line. Like that's incredible. You try and like hone in on what it is that is great about what they're making and what I can feel is special. Um, and then I would also say that there are people who want, maybe in their minds they're saying, I want to make something really popular. And that's normal. You want, you want your work to speak to people. Um, and that's totally fine. And other people might have a different way of thinking about this and, and that's okay too. I, I just think you don't wanna lose something special. You don't wanna to default to that. Like you, you, you wanna choose it for a reason because that's what you need to do.
Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.